right. If you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up. Hebrews uh, chapter 2. If you're looking for the book of Hebrews, don't worry. You're not the only one. Uh, make your way to the right of your Bible. And if you hit Revelations, you went too far. Uh, and so Hebrews chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible and you would love uh, a free one, we would love to gift one to you. Just raise your hand and uh, Tony will, will run one to you. All right, so let me... We walk through books of the Bible here uh, at Merge, and so we, we like that uh, because it keeps us uh, honest to the Word, keeps us from being cowards of just finding the parts of the Word uh, that make us feel really nice and fluffy on the inside, and then uh, avoiding the words that make us uncomfortable. Uh, so let, let me try to bring you into the sequence of thought of, of chapters 1 and 2 where we've been. The writer wants us to realize uh, that Jesus Christ is a big deal. Uh, he comes in, and, and his big push so far is to try to convince us that Jesus is not an angel. Uh, and we get to live on this side of the resurrection, so we're like, well, of course he's not an angel. But for them, this was a big deal, because again, as, the, as Hebrews opens, uh, it says, Long ago, God spoke to us through the prophets, and uh, as we walk through the Old Testament, we find out through angels. And so the line, the line of thinking was simply, well, if angels communicate the message of God and Jesus came to also communicate the message of God, therefore, he must be an angel. And then uh, what the author, what the writer of Hebrews is telling us is like, no, if you think that's the case, you, you are sadly mistaken because Jesus is much greater than that. In fact, he says that uh, he is worshipped by angels because he is himself God. That, that, that Jesus is the Father's final and decisive word to the world in these last days, as it says. That, that God has spoken to us in these last days by a son. That's what we get in chapter 1, verse 2. And this writer wants us to join in, uh, with the angels in worshipping this, this great God-revealing, God-expressing uh, Son. And so, so he piles up this, this list of glories uh, that Jesus has. And, and it's listed in cha- uh, chapter 1, verses 2 and 4, that, that he is the heir of all things, that through him all things were made, that, that he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's nature, that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He, he made purifications for sins once for all time, and then he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God in heaven, where he reigns today, and all enemies are under his feet. So when we got to sing what a wonderful name it is, the name of Jesus, that's the context. That's, that's the context. That's where our hearts go as we get to celebrate who we are in Christ. And so, so now on the basis of that tremendous celebration of the greatness of Christ, the writer in chapter 2, he brings a warning to us, and he, says, he brings this warning of the utter craziness of not paying attention to the final and decisive Word of God, that we would neglect our salvation. In fact, in, in chapter uh, 2, verse 3, it says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So, so he says uh, it's, it's suicidal to hear about uh, such a great Savior and such a great salvation and then walk away and just neglect it while we busy ourselves 
with lesser things. That, that we would prove by our neglect that we don't think it's great. And therefore, we, we've never really seen it and we've never really tasted that it's truth. And then, then he goes to talk in uh, chapter 2, verse 5, about the greatness of what our salvation really is. In fact, it, he says the focus is on the purpose of God for humans to one day have this, this it sounds like a dream to us, and it would be if it wasn't so true from coming from the Word of God, that, that one day we will have this magnificent position of glory and honor under God and over the creation that He has made. And, and in chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, uh, he quotes uh, this conversation that David is pondering in Psalm 8 about, about how a man is crowned with glory and honor and has all things in subjection under his feet. But the writer of Hebrews is not naive. He's not, he's not dumb because he, he knows that this is a great destiny appointed for man, but it's not now our reality. So, so he says at the end of verse 8, but, but now we, we do not see all things subjected to him. And so, so instead of this gloriously uh, rule over creation, uh, man suffers and we die. That's, that's just kind of what happens. I don't know if that's news to you this morning, um, but one day you're going to die. Uh, let that just carry you. And, and so, so instead of ruling, we suffer and we die and, and we may be able to do some great things. We may be able to go to the moon. We may be able to be able to cure polio, right? We may even be able to figure out how to sync up our um, DVD receiver to our speakers, you know. We might be able to do all these great and magnificent things. We can split the atom, but we can't stop aging. And we can't stop death. And, and so Psalm 8 has this fulfillment that's not yet seen. And, and what then... We said this last week. What then is the answer to our hopeless subjection to death, right? If, if we're promised in Psalm 8 this incredible uh, truth that... that so, so how do we attain that? And the answer, the writer tells us, is through Jesus. That Jesus came into the world as a human being so that he could be the forerunner of a new humanity. That, that burst forth past the bonds of of sin and futility and, and, and death and, and that he entered glory that was promised by God. And this is, this is what was revealed to us as we wrapped up our time last week. And it's a verse that keeps playing on repeat in my head because we're talking about that subjection and us un, un, unable to attain it. And then verse 9 in chapter 2 comes in and says this, But we see him. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, that he was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So, so, so in other words, even though you and I do not yet have the glory and the honor promised in Psalm 8, because we suffer and we do die. Nevertheless, Jesus has come into the world as a human being and has broken through death. 
And not only that, he's risen into glory and honor that's promised to us as he is our captain or our forerunner. Okay, so so the reason why we, we call Jesus captain, my captain, uh, is is because verse 10 makes very clear what the son of God was doing when he became a human being. Okay, very clearly he's going to say this. In fact, he is leading us to a glory filled place. Okay, that's what verse 10 is going to tell us. So let's go there. Verse 10. For it was fitting. Okay, we're going to spend a bulk of our time. I was going to try to get us to verse 18. I just couldn't do it, Troy. Couldn't do it. Ran out of notes. Uh, and so, so it was fitting. We're going to spend a bulk of our time in this verse today. For it was fitting that he... Okay, and now I included some uh, asterisks in the underline uh, just to make it a little easier to keep pace. Okay, for it was fitting that he, being God the Father... For whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, that's going to be us, should make the founder of their salvation, being Jesus, perfect through suffering. Okay? You can almost, for, the, for lack of better, uh, we'll get back to it, you can just ignore um, the whom, for whom and by whom all things exist. Okay? So for it was fitting that God in bringing us to glory, should make the founder, should make Jesus perfect through suffering. We get it? If not, we can just circle back around. This is a really important part. Okay, everybody's like, uh, yeah, I get it. Let's just move on. Um, okay, so, so there, there's a lot of important things to see in this verse, and we're going to try to tackle mainly two uh, this morning with our time. Uh, but, but the first one is this. Notice this. Notice what God is doing in sending his son into the world to suffer. That he is bringing many sons to glory. So, so a good question that follows is, is what glory is he talking about, right? What glory is he talking about? And the answer is, is the same glory that we talked about last week in, in Psalm, verse, uh, Psalm 8. That we saw in, in verse 7 that you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. That, that this is the glory we've fallen from in our sin and in our rebellion against God. But now God is undertaking a great salvation on our behalf. On our behalf. That he sends his son to taste death for us. To deliver us from the futility and the defeat and the misery and the condemnation of sin and death. And then he takes that and he leads us to somewhere great and unimaginable. And the writer, the best phrase he could come up with is, leads us to, to glory. And to do this, he, he has suffered and entered before us uh, into that very glory. And verse 9 says that Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So, so what he does for us is he becomes our forerunner. He goes before us. He becomes a human being. He suffers. He dies in our place. He, he rises from the dead victorious and he enters into glory. And the question is, why? And the answer is to lead many sons to glory. And so, so what we need to see here is that, that what the writer is, that the writer is still talking about this great salvation that he began in verse 3. That's what he's talking about, that, that our great salvation is that we are destined for glory through the arrival, the suffering, the death, the resurrection, the glorification of Jesus as the one who has gone ahead of us, 
that he literally has paved the way, that the promise of Psalm 8 is fulfilled for us because it has already been fulfilled in Jesus. That he tasted death for us so that he can lead us to glory. This is a great, this is a great salvation because the destiny we are saved for is great. It is that, that, that we will one day break free from cancer and paralysis and arthritis and blindness and depression and corruption and inherit the glory of the risen Son of God. And so if it wasn't for faith, that would sound like, it would sound moronic, right? It would sound so false. But if it wasn't for faith, these things are available, that he's been crowned with glory and honor, and this, this is where he's leading us. And it's a great salvation because he's a great savior. That's the way that plays out. It's a great salvation because he's a great savior. And this is, this is the son of God who came, not as an angel, not as a mere human being, but the Son of God who is God, who worshipped and who is worshipped and revered forever. That no one less than God has come to lead us to glory. No one less. And so this is a great salvation because the forerunner is great. And because the goal is great. That our captain paving and leading the way is the Son of God. And that connection is very, very important for us to make. So very important. So we go back and we attach ourselves, we attach our hearts to a plea that we saw last week, right? That don't neglect your salvation. Don't do it. It's worth asking this question. Are you neglecting your salvation if you are indeed saved in Christ? Are you neglecting it? Do you take the greatness of it for granted? I I think one of the reasons for weakness in in the Christian church today is that so many of us neglect our salvation, that that we know we have it and we say, yeah, that's great, that's good, I got it. You know, some of you might be saying, well, I don't know what that looks like. What does it look like to neglect your salvation? And and perhaps the opposite, um, asking the opposite end of that question would be more helpful. What does it look like uh, to... Uh, what is the opposite of neglecting such a great salvation? I'm glad you asked that question because Hebrews tells us. All right? I'm just going to give you, I'm going to read these off. We don't even have them on the board. Uh, I'm going to read these off. And if you'd like to just jot them down and you can read it a little bit more later this week. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. We've been here. That we would pay close attention to what we have heard. That's how we avoid neglecting our great salvation, that we would pay close attention to what we have heard. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, Consider Jesus the apostle and the high priest of our salvation, of our confession. Chapter 3, verses 12 and 13 says it this way, that we would take care lest there should be any of you uh, an evil, unbelieving heart, but encouraging one another day after day lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Chapter 4, verse 16 says it's, it's, it's drawing near to the throne of grace for help. 
Chapter 10, verse 23 says, It's holding fast our confession without wavering. Chapter 10, verse 35 says, It's not throwing away your confidence, which has great reward. Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, It is running the race that is set before us by looking to Jesus as the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. And lastly, chapter 12, verse 25 says, It's not refusing Him who is speaking from heaven. It's not refusing Him. So, so not neglecting your great salvation means applying yourself to actually think about the depths of your great salvation. It's, it's meditating on why it's great. It's focusing on the greatness of Jesus as our captain and our pioneer and our perfecter of our salvation. And it's to pray for help in all to the, at the throne of grace. It's not neglecting as the opposite of simply coasting and then dabbling and then forgetting so so when i was growing up uh, i collected baseball cards i was the only kid that i knew that did that i'm joking everybody did it right like we would collect baseball cards in fact my dad welded like this container uh that's what you get with in your geary somebody just builds something that you don't really need but anyways it's like 500 pounds and it would hold all the 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 baseball cards, and we loved, my brother and I loved collecting those cards, man. There, I had a Gino Petrali that I thought for sure one day was going to make me independently wealthy. Um, and if you don't know who Gino Petrali is, well then, yeah, I don't know what to do for you because I'm not your friend. Um, but we would collect these cards, right? And we would, anybody buy the Beckett um, magazine? Uh, basically, it was a it was a va- card value magazine, and so you'd you'd find your Gino Petrali, and then you'd rifle through the Beckett to find out that that Gino Petrali was worth ten cents. And you're like, well, I need about a trillion of these, and then I can buy that jet that I would like to buy, right? And we used to we used to look at them, and we used to trade cards, and then then we my favorite thing, and it doesn't make any sense to me now, but they they still do it. You would buy a full season of cards, right? Um, and then it would be wrapped in plastic, and then you would never open it uh, because you wanted this to be in mint condition in the event that the 1992 whatever league you had had someone in it that their rookie card was hidden in one of about 1,200 cards, and you're like, yes. And so we bought a box just to look at a box, like not even to do anything. With it, and we love, man. I would get home and I would look at those cards all the time. I would look at stats, even though it didn't really matter because it all happened the year before, right? But then something happened. Uh, I stopped looking at those cards one day, and I began to neglect it. And other things started to draw me away, namely girls. Okay. Um. So, so we stopped focusing and we stopped planning and we stopped thinking about and it, what once brought us great joy, we began to drift from it. And for a while, there'd be spurts of, of recovered interest, right? You're like, oh yeah, these are great. I love these. And then it didn't last very long. It was really more nostalgia. And, and today, I really have no idea where those boxes are and where those cards are. My suspicion is that my brother has them somewhere uh, and that he's saving that Gino Petrali for one day 
uh, and he'll call me from his housing wherever. He won't tell me where. He'll just say, hey, I sold the cards. And But today, I, honestly, I have no interest and there's no connection to those cards. And, and maybe with you it was something else. I mean, we've, we've had a couple in, in my day and age, right? We had Beanie Babies, right? Was it Pogs? Right? Yeah, because like, oh, I had the ALF one, and I was like, yeah. And if you don't know who ALF is, that's okay. It's okay. The, the show doesn't stand up. Um, other, once there was this in, intense interest and then neglect and drifting and forgetting, and, and I think this is the way many of us treat the great salvation that we've received in Jesus, and, and which is a million times more valuable and more important than baseball cards or pogs or pogs or whatever. That you have this short spurt of intense interest and, and attention, and then, as Jesus said, the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in, and they choke out the word. And, and so, so first, there's this kind of a, a hit and a miss and a dabbling with the things of God. And then there's this, this drifting and then finally uh, a forgetting and, and a cold indifference. And, and all we see here, guys, all we see in this, in this letter of Hebrews is this one very extended, God-given help to us to not let that happen. This, this, this book itself is not neglecting of our great salvation. It's this, this long meditation on the greatness of what Jesus has made possible for us. And so this book, it models for us what we can do with our great salvation. We can ponder. We can ponder its greatness. We can probe into why it is the way that it is. And we can dig to the very bottom, the very bottom of why our salvation took place this way and not that way. That's what we get to do. That's what the writer is trying to express to us. And, and he's doing it, and it's helpful. This is God's word to help us and teach us to not neglect what Christ has done. So, so let's see how this fleshes itself out in verse 10. Uh, because this is, this is the writer's meditation on part of the greatness of our salvation. Namely, how fitting it was that the Son of God, who is very God, should suffer as a human being. Verse 9 ends by saying that he tasted death for us. And verse 10 explains why this was fitting or appropriate. For it was fitting that he, the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons of glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect. So if you'd like to underline or circle in your Bible, that's a good word. Perfect through suffering. So the writer is doing what we need to do often. I love this because he, he, he's meditating on the way God accomplished salvation. And, and he's, he's pondering why Christ had to suffer. He's probing into why this is fitting. And, and really it's remarkable. It's a, it's a great permission that we get extended here to us. Uh, because I don't know if, if you might think, well, well, God is God. And I'm not God, and so any way God chooses to do things, well, I'm sure it's fine because He's God. Who am I to question that? Who am I to ask Him if He was wrong in doing that? Uh, and, and now, if that's you, I just need you to know that's not what this guy's doing, what the author of Hebrews is doing. 
He comes in, he's like, why? He brings a question to the table and he says, why does, why does God do it that way? Like if God could have done this, if God could have brought us salvation in any way possible because he is God, why is it fitting that he would do it this way? And it's a remarkable question. Now, I think if, if, if you have a relationship with the Bible where you don't think you can bring a question to God because he would look at you like, what? How dare you? That's not what he sounds like. But, but if that's the way you think, I'm just letting you know, that's not what we find in the Word. Because there, there are moments that we find in the Word where, where the psalmist comes in and he's like, I don't know what you're doing. I don't get it. This is hard. This is painful. I'm afraid. Why are you doing this? And it's a very honest way of approaching the throne room of grace. And so this is what he's doing. This is the, the author thinks about God. He thinks about salvation. He thinks that if God does it here this way, then there must be something deeply fitting about it. There must be something coherent or, or symmetrical or beautiful about it. And he thinks that not neglecting our great salvation involves thinking about this. It involves asking God why he did it this way and, and coming to the conclusion that causes us to worship and rejoice and obey. And so verse 10 says that it is fitting. It is fitting that God should perfect his son through suffering as a way of bringing many sons to glory. So, so let me just mention three things to us. And we're going to try to do this pretty quickly. Three things of, of how this plays itself out. Three things that we see from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. And the first one is this. We get to see how the Son is made perfect through suffering. We get to see how He's made perfect through suffering. Take, take note that these sufferings are seen as means by which God perfects the Son. So what, what does that mean? Does it mean that Jesus was sinfully imperfect and had to suffer in order to rid Himself of sin? No, not at all. In fact, uh, this book, almost more than any other letter, uh, is insistent that Christ was free from sin before the cross. We find that in, in chapter 4, verse 15, chapter 7, verse 26, chapter 9, verse 14. And so, so what then is the question? And, and Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 through 9 give us the answer. Lawson, I think we have that for us, right? So it says this, that although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And so, so here, being made perfect means learning obedience. It means learning obedience through suffering. This does not mean that he was once disobedient and became obedient. It means that, that Jesus moved from untested obedience into suffering and then through suffering into tested and proven obedience. That is how he proves his credentials. And so in proving himself obedient through suffering, he was being perfected. And so, so the writer says in, in chapter 10, in verse, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 10, that it was fitting for Christ to attain this perfection through suffering and the question is why? Because it's, he is leading many sons to glory. We don't have to go very far. And so he must succeed where we fail. That, that 
we have all suffered, we've all failed and to be perfected by it. And so instead, what we do is we murmur and we complain and we get angry <laughs> with God uh, and His wisdom. And, and in this way, we'll never attain the glory of God. We'll never attain what Psalm 8 has left for us to take hold of. And so someone must come, someone must rescue, someone must lead us to glory. And, and if Christ is going to lead us to glory, then he must succeed in suffering where we failed. That's the, that's the line. Then that he did. That he did. He was perfected in them. He always obeyed when tested, even when tested with the most horrible and horrific, I should say, sufferings. That, so he is, he is a fitting captain to walk behind. Number two, what we get to see is how the Son provides unity for all of God's children. That's what we get to see. That one, of, one great aim of God in salvation is that, that He have a, a great unified family of children with Jesus being essentially different from and yet at the same time deeply united to His other human brothers and sisters. Robert Mueller said it this way, that, that the gospel transforms believers into the children of God and siblings of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's the issue. If all the brothers and sisters in a family have experienced suffering except one, that unity is jeopardized. You ever have a, a sibling who you felt got to play by different rules than what you had to play with? Right? Did that ever grow in you any sense of unity? Or did it grow in you sense of resentment, <laughs> irritation, frustration? Maybe you say that's not fair, right? That's what you sound like. And so for the sake of, of a common spirit and sympathy and, and camaraderie, uh, even in suffering, Christ takes on human nature and leads many sons to glory through suffering and death. And this is, uh, this is where we're going to end up spending a bulk of our time next week. How beautiful that is. That there's no temptation that we go through that He hasn't gone through. So, But we get from this a connection between verses 10 and 11. 10 says it's fitting for God to bring many sons to glory through the suffering of His Son. And verse 11 is going to give us a reason why it's fitting. Okay, So it says this, For, Lawson, can you give me chapter uh, verse 11? Thank you. For He who sanctifies, okay, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that's us, right? All have one source, that's the Father. That is why He is not ashamed to call them Brother, now let's just stop right there for a moment. That Jesus Christ would call you brother or sister, done. Done. That, the, the thought of that, the thought that he would even acknowledge that I exist is amazing. But then to say, hey, you're in. You're in the family. We are siblings. Done. That's why he says in, in Psalm 22, verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, uh, and I will put trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of 
the children God has given me. In other words, the reason it is fitting for Christ to suffer and lead many sons to glory is that suffering expresses that He's a good brother and He's a better Lord. And so let, your, let yourself think on that, guys. That, that give some time to pondering this truth that, that Christ suffered, His Father willed that He suffer because God aims to create a family that is so unified and so deeply interwoven and empathetic that the family would be jeopardized if the perfect older brother does not go through all the pain that the rest of the children do. And this is part of what makes our salvation great. And let's, let's start wrapping this up. Number three. Here's what we ultimately, here's what we get to see. We get to see how the Son displays the infinite value of the Father's glory. That's what we get to see. How the Son, how Jesus displays the infinite value of God's glory. So here's the third, and this is why it's fitting for God to bring many sons to glory through the suffering of the Son, that God created all things, and He governs all things to magnify His own glory. That His own freedom, His own self-sufficiency, and His all-satisfying worth, and the willingness of the Son of God to suffer in obedience to the Father shows the infinite greatness of the Father's worth. You okay? She gonna die? You gonna die? Yeah. You alright? If so, I mean, at least we had this moment to share. Oh, you're okay. It's Troy that was complaining about it. I saw it. So, so verse 10 simply says this, for it was fitting, right, that he being God for whom and by whom all things exist. For whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now notice those crucial words. For whom and by whom all things exist. It was fitting for this God to lead sons to glory through suffering. And the question is, which God? Little G or big G? And the writer says big G. That it's the God that for whom and by whom all things exist. In other words, the God who creates and sustains and governs all things to magnify Himself. Himself. All things exist for the glory of God to show how all-sufficient, how all-satisfying He is. So Piper put it this way, John Piper. He says, the writer says that it is fitting for this God to lead many sons to glory through suffering. And why? Evidently, because the willingness of His Son to suffer is the brightest display of the Father's glory in all the universe. That in the book of Hebrews, the willingness to suffer loss is evidence of great confidence in God to bring us through to glory. So with Jesus, Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says that Jesus endured the cross and despised the shame for the joy that was set before him. And so the question is, what kind of joy? And it's the joy of sitting down at the right hand of God's majesty, surrounded by countless company of worshiping brothers and sisters. So the depth of Christ's suffering was the measure of his confidence 
an all-satisfying joy for God's glory. That's what's on display. So the ultimate reason why it was fitting for such a great, glorious God to lead many sons to glory through the suffering of His Son, it is fitting because it magnifies the glory of God most. Most. This is why our salvation is so great, guys. It's, it's, it's a salvation that has God at the beginning and has God at the end. So how can it not be an unspeakably great salvation? Why can we go days and weeks and months without telling anyone about what Jesus has done? How is it possible? But seriously, that's, that's what he's saying. If you can't speak about the fact that Jesus has paved the way for you to go to glory because of the glorification of the, of the Father, what does that say about how great you believe your salvation is? I love you. Our desire this week is to love God. Bye. Please stand with me. So we wrap up, let me make a couple things available. If you need prayer today, we want to pray with you. Maybe you aren't saved. We want to walk with you. We don't sell Jesus here, but we do proclaim Him. If you need that kind of time, there will be people over here. We want, to, we want to walk with you through that. Let us pray. Father, we thank You today that You love us. We thank You that through Your Son You were leading us somewhere. And though we don't know exactly what it looks like, and we don't, I don't believe we have the emotions to even explain it, we in faith believe it to be so. So Father, we pray that through the power of Your Holy Spirit You would continue to give us taste of things yet to come. We pray You would open our eyes to seeing and meditating and proclaiming the goodness of Your Son so that our lives would be a glory to You. We love You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.